1: Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I'm going to tell you about someone who is making today's show possible, and that someone is Audible. Audible, for those of you who do not know, is the best place in the world for audiobooks and spoken word content. And if you want, you can try it right now. For free, for 30 days, you can get a free 30-day trial membership. All you have to do is go to audiblepodcast.com slash longform, audiblepodcast.com slash longform is the URL to go to. Once you're there, you can choose from more than 180,000 audiobooks and programs, anything you want in an audiobook realm is there for you and you can download one for free today right now you can go there audiblepodcast.com slash long pick out a book start listening right now all kinds of people who have been on the show have books on audible many of them are read by the people themselves uh cheryl strade ta coates there's fantastic stuff on there you really can't do any better in the audiobook world audiblepodcast.com slash long Hello. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey, hey, hey guys. Yeah.
2: Thanks for joining us, Aaron. I
1: apologize. I was late. I will, every time I'm late, I will shame myself on the show so that our audience also feels ashamed. Okay. <laughs> Don't gonna, do it every time. Yeah, that's going to get boring real quick. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, who's on the show
1: this week? This week is uh, Michael J. Mooney. Mike Mooney. He writes for D Magazine and GQ. D is the magazine of Dallas. That's right. The yep. City Magazine of Dallas. Fantastic magazine. And uh, yeah, Mike's very punctual. He emailed me like seven months ago and was like, I'm going to be in New York. I have a plane ticket. Let's tape this podcast you're always talking about. And uh, so we taped that podcast I'm always talking about. I had a very good time hanging out with him at the South by Southwest a
2: couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. he's great.
1: He's great. Yeah. And uh, he, was, uh, he was really open, talked about it all. I really appreciated him taking the time.
2: What about sponsors, Aaron?
1: Of course, MailChimp. If your business sends emails, send them through MailChimp. That's all you need to know. MailChimp, business emails, project emails, bakery emails, all those kinds of emails. MailChimp. (laughs) Bakery emails. (laughs) (laughs) Aaron's not at breakfast yet. He was late.
2: (laughs) And now here's Max with Michael J. Mooney. Hey, Mike Mooney.
1: Welcome to Dumbo. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I'm very happy to have you here.
2: Hey, man, good to be
1: here. I've, I've met you one, once before, Austin. Austin, uh, we did this thing at South by Southwest. We did a live podcast at South by Southwest. I have this very clear memory of meeting you, which was you were like sitting at the bar, and I like went up to the bar to get a drink, and uh, I feel like people should know uh, you're you're a, you're a man with crazy hair. You're a crazy haired man.
2: Go on. <laughs> you have some wild hair. You have
1: your hair you have very long hair and at the time it was kind of like blown out. Yeah. That's how I remember it. So it's like sort of like a lion's mane. You got like a large beard. How does that play as a reporter? Like you are not a traditional looking scribe.
2: I mean, it depends on how old your traditions go. You go back to like cro Magnum. It's very <laughs> traditional.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. it You're like unfrozen <laughs> caveman reporter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: um Yeah, I don't know. It's it's uh it's just kind of what I do. Uh it sometimes it really disarms people. Sometimes it really makes people uncomfortable. Um eh, not not very often. It makes me hard to read. Like uh-huh. people don't know I was like, is is he a hippie? Is he is he like is he like a rock guy? Uh Glenn Beck was just fascinated. he just stared at me and was just fascinated <laughs> by my whole appearance for a while and then decided I was t- it was like I was in. And then really? yeah, he was like high fiving me and hugging me and Yeah, it was it was interesting. Most of the time people just kinda laugh. It's weird. Um, and, and, you know, I tie my hair back sometimes, and I wear hats a lot. and uh, that can, But it, it also, there are some people who just, they're, they're so intrigued that it just kind of uh, puts them a little off balance, and they want to talk about me, and, what it, and they, they want to talk about new things that they weren't ready to talk about sometimes. And, and it just, it, it puts people in a different place. My fantasy maybe, like maybe what I'm
1: driving at, or what I like to think. Your stories have also, I would say, like a uh, like a great deal of empathy. You seem to like really care about the people you write about. Yeah, and I wonder if it's helpful that when you show up, it's like, yeah, I'm I'm a person. I like yeah. I'm a person with my own desires in the world. I'm yeah. not like a cardboard cutout, and I'm like not going to show you anything of myself. Uh, and this is all about you. It's like we're 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 two people interacting.
2: Yeah, I think I think some people are scared. They're you know like. What have I just done? What have I gotten into agreeing to hang out with this guy? <laughs> uh, but it becomes very humanizing very quickly. It's like that guy has made some interesting decisions in his life. <laughs> uh, let's see where this is going to go.
1: Uh, well, let's see where this is going to go. I, 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 there's all these stories I want to talk to you about. I don't know how to, how to whittle them down. But I want to start with the most amazing bowling story ever, ever told. That's the headline. Bowling. Uh,
2: most amazing bowling story ever. Did you pick that headline? I didn't. And that actually wasn't even the headline in print. It was, uh, that was like a cover tease that they ended up using as the web head. Ah. Um,
1: I've let my D Magazine subscription laugh, so I I didn't see it in print.
2: uh, We talk about this. Had uh, had they gone with, uh, I think it was Near Miss or something, you know, just kind of a regular title, uh, it it may, People may not have ever read that. It may not have been whatever it became, which was big bowling story. Uh, <laughs> I mean, maybe yeah. the biggest
1: bowling story. Maybe the most amazing bowling yeah. story. I mean,
2: I still get emailed about that story. It, it's, it's really strange. Uh, and I, I, I don't get nervous about stories. As, I mean, I do a lot. But uh, as much as I was nervous about that one, because uh, it, first of all, it was held for like four months. Like it was done completely and then it just kept getting bumped for a couple of different reasons.
1: Can you just like briefly summarize that story?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's about a, a guy who came very, very close to bowling three consecutive perfect games and he missed it on the last pin of the last roll in the last frame. And that night he then had a stroke and did this potentially in the middle of a stroke Uh, And lived. And uh, through this, kind of realized that he wasn't a robot. His name was Bill Fong. That's right. He had sort of
1: never done well.
2: He's had a rough life. Uh, He'd kind of never really had a lot of the success that he had hoped for and really thought of himself as somebody who had not gotten the respect that he deserved in life.
1: And he was a maniacal bowler. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's still— Obsessed bowler. Yeah, he
2: bowls five nights a week at least. Uh, Generally, he'll bowl every single night.
1: So this guy basically, like, had struck out in a bunch of different ways in his life. Like, his marriage had ended early. His parents had
2: treated him really terribly.
1: Yeah, he had a great childhood. Now there's this moment in the story where it's just, like, his mom left at one point. He's just, like, doing his own thing. He spent 10 years on some, like, Malcolm Gladwell, I'm going to become a pro golfer if I just play enough didn't make it, like, actually didn't become a very good golfer yeah. even after playing obsessively for 10 years. And His went ba- sister
2: is actually a great golfer. that's <laughs> that that like, must make it
1: even rougher. Yeah, doubly bad. Yeah, anyway, so poor Bill Fong, man. He became obsessed with bowling, and he bowled five nights a week. And then this one night at the, what was it, the Plano? The Plano Super Bowl. The Plano Super Bowl came one pin from the perfect game, which happens, like, there's yeah. been twenty or something yeah. in the history of bowling, yeah, very, very rare. And then the thing about the stroke that people should also know is like the tension of getting that close probably brought on the stroke, and then the tension of of not getting it definitely brought on the stroke. But if he hadn't had the stroke, he probably would have had a fatal one yeah like yeah. shortly thereafter. like it was like a minor event, but it would have been a major event very, very soon yeah. thereafter. So in this weird way, getting Bill, <laughs> Bill Fong almost reaches perfection and it actually like saved his life that he missed that last pin.
2: yeah, and he learned that these people that uh that he had you know known through the bowling alley were actually his friends, right They actually cared about him and showed him that, you know they were really concerned about his life and it, he just it didn't he didn't realize it, it didn't recur to him for them.
1: I try not to like fanboy out too much on this podcast, and I'm pretty pretty bad at doing it. But this story is basically perfect. Thanks, man. It, It is. It's it's just it's just great, and it's like it reads like a fable, and it also seems really emblematic of the kind of work that you do. What are you looking for in stories? Like, what drew you to that one in particular? But a lot of your stuff reads like that, like kind of like a fable. Is that something you're looking for in stories?
2: I do look for like a fairy tale aspect of stories sometimes. That's something we talk about a lot. Um, my editor, Tim Rogers at, at D, uh, we were talking about something totally random. And he was like, do you remember this time this guy made the newspaper? He missed a perfect 300 by one pin. Talked about it for a second. Totally forgot about it. And it was a couple days later. I was like, wait, why would somebody make – people come close to 300 all the time. Why would anybody ever – why would that be in the newspaper? And at some point I realized what it actually was that he'd come one pin away from a perfect series. Looking back now, it was kind of like a weird trust thing because it was like, here's a story about uh, nobody famous. Uh, it happened two years ago somewhere in the suburbs. Um, <laughs> you know, there's no, like, kidnapping or or hitman or anything like that. It's about bowling. And the guy doesn't accomplish the thing he's trying to do. Can you give me 4,500 words? You know, can I do 5,000 on that? To his credit, he was like, yeah, this is – uh, there was actually another slightly bowling-related story that I was interested in at the time. And he was like, look, you're only going to do one bowling story every 10 years in D Magazine. So pick one. Do you bowl? Occasionally. You know, like uh, I'm an American. So <laughs> uh, like I go to bowling alleys every so often. And I, and I like bowling. I just pretty much never do, – I don't think about it very often. And and uh, oddly, it's so weird that this story was big uh, because – the probably the most popular story I did when I was at uh Village when I was at New Times was a story about prostitutes bowling. Yeah, you but know, you can bowling. see
1: how that story would maybe have more appealing than just like a yeah, guy who yeah. almost did really well at bowling. Yeah, yeah, very different, <laughs> uh, very different arc there.
2: Um, and so it was just, a, it's one, I think bowling is also one of those kind of universal things. It's just one of those things that almost everybody has done at some point in their life, and nobody is, uh, nobody knows an expert, nobody knows a great bowl, you know. I know people who are really good bowlers, but nobody's going to go on the pro tour anytime soon.
1: It's also one of those things that, like, you kind of think in the back of your head: if I just bowled all the time, I'd probably be like pretty good at bowling. Yeah.
2: It just, when I when I see professional bowlers, at some point, I'm like, that may not be a sport. That may not be like a real sport. <laughs> that's a um, hobby, sir. Yeah, right? but that's only appearances. I'm sure I don't. I'm sure there's a lot that I don't understand there, and that I actually make a great story. And I don't want to, yeah, uh, write any of those off. And I just realized what I, yeah, now you can apologize to the bowling that's exactly lobby later. Yeah. Um, you were saying you
1: were nervous about that story. Why were you nervous about it?
2: Because when it came out, it was like, uh, "What have I done? What have I just written a story about? This is uh, this is a really weird thing." And and even when people are asking me when I was working on it, you know, "What are you working on?" I I would have a really hard time explaining. I'm like, "It's a story about bowling. It's a story about this guy." And I would just say, "It's a story about perfection." I'm really working on the story about perfection, and it's kind of told through this bowling thing. And so that's it to me. It really was, and it still is it's a story about perfection. In this in this kind of weird relationship that people have with it and how impossible and, you know, it seemed like such an esoteric kind of idea of a story. And so what like, you
1: were nervous about was like it was going to come out and people were just going to be like, why is this in a magazine?
2: Yes. Yeah, that's exactly what I was worried about. Yeah. Or or honestly, the guy who owned the magazine being like, why is this guy on the staff here? Why well, he's got to go. This is <laughs> terrible. What have we done having this guy come to Dallas? Uh, but that was not the reaction to that story. No, it did really well. It was... It was like one of the most read stories on the site for a while. And, and uh, yes, it became a, uh, a guy in Miami turned it into a short documentary that's really cool. It ran on the New York Times site. And um, I think Fox Sports did something about it relatively recently. And uh, it still is in Bill Fong's life. Uh, he and I still talk. And it comes up in his life all the time.
1: Really? You stay you stayed in touch with them.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. I, there's almost nobody I've written about that I'm not in touch with and to some degree.
1: Really? Yeah. Why do you think that is, that you stay in touch with people?
2: Uh, Except, I mean, I've shown a vested interest in their lives. And, and, you know, I can only do a certain number of stories a year. So I, I am really interested in a person if I want to do a story about them anyway. You know, I'm pretty fascinated by the person and intrigued. Robert Jeffers the kind of person, you know, even if we don't get along on anything, it's it's really uh, – if I don't agree with him on anything. He's still a really interesting person to know and to talk to and to get their opinion and, and takes on things. And, I'm, and I care about – what happens to these people? You know, I care about what happens to them long after my story is done. I cared about them when I began writing about them. That's why. And so uh, there's no reason I would stop caring about them.
1: Are people ever disappointed in the piece? Do they ever have problems with your stories? Like, I feel like a lot of the reason that people do lose touch, reporters do lose touch with their subjects, is that the story comes out and there's something in there that the subject doesn't feel great about.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I tell them, you know, before a story comes out, I always say, I, I try and go over the story, like, section by section. I don't want anybody to be surprised by a story or anything in a story. Um, and I and even as we're working, as we're hanging out or as I'm interviewing somebody or, or talking to them, I let them know, you know, there's a 5,000, 6,000, 7,000-word story. There's going to be some of those words you don't like. Um, and, and, and that's, and people kind of understand. And as long as I let them know Beforehand, everything that's gonna you know, there's nothing in there that's gonna shock them. They understand.
1: Is that something? Is that like a, a way that you judge the success of a piece in in how true it feels to the person who's being written about?
2: No, not really. Um, I I don't know what exactly makes successful story. You know, it's it's so random. You know, does it is it is it picked for an anthology? Is it picked? Is it make an end of the year list? Is it do really well online? Do you get a lot of letters? Is it? You know, one person reads the story and they're like, yeah, this." you get one letter that's just really awesome. Every single th- story I have, there's like something small or or something big I would change or completely redo or whatever. But, you know, there's no there's no story looking back that I wouldn't change something if I had the chance.
1: Why do you think the Bill Fong story did as well as it did? Like w- what explains that gap between how you felt about it before it ran and then it being like the most traffic story on the site and making all those lists and all that stuff?
2: Man, if I could— Figure out exactly what was going to do really well online. I would make a lot more money than I do now. I don't know. It was everybody was surprised, and I think that's one of the reasons it did well. It was because it was kind of a weird, surprising story that people don't, you know, that was not the kind of thing that in a reader survey anybody would have ever said. This is exactly the kind of story I'm looking for. You know, what what kind of story do we want? Well, I want some more recipes, and I really want a story about a guy in the suburbs two years ago who almost, you know, (laughs) it's, it's it was such a strange. Uh, thing that also had a bunch of universal elements. You know, we've all... We, everybody has tried to be perfect in some way, in some aspect. Uh, everybody has struggled and, and, and you know, and everybody has been bowling. Everybody's been to a bowling alley. So, you know, they know that kind of neon colors on the carpet and they know the kind of weird smells of fried foods and they know the sounds that are going on in there. And so you don't even have to describe those in a story and people feel like they're in it. And And it had a lot of tension, right? It was a... Uh, whether this guy was going to do it or, you know, accomplish his goal or not, and and I'm a big fan of stories about people who fail. I've always I've always said the the backup quarterback is is sometimes more interesting. The people who don't accomplish exactly what they set out to are oh almost always more interesting because when somebody wins, all the the only lesson that you could learn is you know how to win, how to how to be the one team that didn't lose in the playoffs that or, or whatever. People who – when you fail, there's so many interesting directions that, that lives go that, you know, so many parts of humanity that are kind of illuminated by
1: failure. Is there something that you're trying to figure out personally,
2: like writing about failure? Like what – why do you think you're attracted to them? I think it's because they're – the variety of stories, right? I, I really like stories. I'm just drawn to stories. I like uh, – a really fascinating roller coaster ride begin, beginning, middle end. That's what I like. And, and the stories that I'm most interested in often, uh, when, I, when I see them, the stories that I'm most interested in are the stories of like, what happened to this guy? Even the upworthy headline style, right? What happens next is the the thing that people want to figure out on the internet.
1: Yeah, I mean, that works. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's part of why that Glenn Beck story works so well, I think, too. You kind of forgot about Glenn Beck. Glenn Beck left Fox News and it was kind of like, all right, that's the
2: end of that. Yeah, And I never forgot about Glenn Beck right I thought about that for two years I mean you was, had to work pretty hard to get in there right? I did yeah every month we talked we talked to their people every single month we first reached out to them in June of 2012 and the story ran in November of 2014 It's dedication it's I mean it was persistence I just really really thought it was an interesting story I Why? really uh but he's I mean he's, you have an interesting character uh, and you have a new interesting setting in in Irving and this studio that he bought, and, and then you have this kind of, what is he doing now? Aspect of that. And, and knowing what he was doing, I was like, I don't think people realize what's happening with Glenn Beck, that he's kind of turning into this mogul character. I think this will be surprising to a lot of people. I think to most people, he just left, left Fox and was gone. <laughs> Hey, I'm going to
1: put Mike on hold for just a second and tell you a little bit about some people who are making today's show possible. First up, our friends at Squarespace. And if you have been thinking about a website that you should put on the internet... Maybe it's like a personal site. Maybe it's a portfolio for your work. Maybe it's for your business. Maybe it's for a new business, some billion-dollar idea that you have not put out in the world yet. Squarespace is the place to do it. We ourselves use Squarespace this fall for this podcast we did. We needed a beautiful website. We needed to be super quick to build. Squarespace was both of those things. You don't need to know a lick of code to get that website you've been meaning to do on the Internet Right now, here's what you should do go to squarespace.com. You can start a free trial, no credit card required. If you do decide to sign up for Squarespace, it's just eight bucks a month. And if you use the offer code LONGFORM at checkout, you'll get 10% off your first purchase. Sign up for a year, you get a free domain. It's a good deal. Squarespace, you should. Also, sponsoring the show this week, the latest book from number one New York Times bestselling author Karen Marie Monning. It's called Feverborn. I'm going to read you the description. Here we go. Mac, Barons, Riadan, and Jada are back, and the stakes have never been higher or the chemistry hotter. Hurling us into a realm of labyrinthine intrigue and consummate seduction, Feverborn is a riveting tale of ancient evil, lust, betrayal, forgiveness, and the redemptive power of love. It's the latest book in Karen Marie Monning's epic fever series. It's called Feverborn. If that description caught your ear, go to feverbornbook.com to learn more. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show, and let's get back to Mike. I'm interested in, in uh, writing for a city magazine. So like, Which one?
2: <laughs> D Magazine. So, yeah. so, I mean, that's... That's your what? Yeah, I mean, I, I could hook you up with some editors there. We've got some...
1: No, I'm not personally yeah. interested oh, in it at oh, all. Oh, okay. No, no, no. Yeah. I'm interested in in the process of it. And, like, you came there from Florida. You were writing about Miami, yeah. which is one of the most, like, writable places yeah. in the world. I uh, worked at a newspaper in Florida myself. It's... Uh, it is a land of ridiculous stories.
2: Yeah, and that's—I mean, I, I'm, I'm from Dallas. I'm from the suburbs of Dallas, uh, and I had a choice of a couple different places I could go uh, when Village Voice hired me, and that—that's—I was not ever—I I never had a question. I knew I wanted to go to Florida because the stories are so interesting. You know, living in Texas, reading interesting long-form stories, a lot of them were from Florida, right? Yeah. And so we talked about this a lot, and and I went there, and it was like. Not in any way a disappointment. It was (laughs) was wonderful. We joked that I could walk outside and, like, catch a feature falling from the sky. Um, Very early on when I was there, uh, the governor at the time made an announcement with the Seminoles that they were going to allow some sort of special gambling rules, special table gambling that no other body had. Uh, not everybody had. And in exchange, the uh, tribe was going to give the state $100 million cash or something like that. And it was in a briefcase and it was at a press conference. And I was like, this is a strange place. This would happen in a, in a parking garage in most states um, and be uh, frowned upon and somebody would have to leave office. <laughs> and this is like, there are cameras here and they've invited reporters. And there's $100 million in cash. Yeah. And the first time, you know, police d- described uh, a chase as somebody running into an alligator's mouth. It was like, oh, well, that's that police chase ended because the suspect ran into an alligator's mouth somewhere in a covered swamp. Like I'm sure that's I'm sure that's exactly how that went. Um, <laughs> it was it, so you know, it was just there's as as a journalist, there's just stories all over the place there. You were pretty young when you got there, right? Yeah, I was 25 when I moved My first night there, the first night that I was in my apartment there, the neighbors were having a giant barbecue, and the only music they were playing were Disney songs, <laughs> really, really loud. I was like, "Where am I?" Do you remember like the process of starting to report there? Like, like, were you pretty confident in the writing? Uh, no, I mean, I'm never, you know, I'm, I don't, I'm never particularly confident in the writing. I uh, I liked it a lot. I knew this is exactly what I wanted to do. Had you known that for a long time? Yeah, for a couple of years at that point, I knew that I wanted—and, you know, growing up in Texas, reading Texas Monthly and and D Magazine and New York Times Magazine and a bunch of this, at some point I was like, you know, I think I might be able to do that. I think—and it's, you know, just like the hubris of uh, early 20s. But it was really—I might be able to do this kind of thing. Um, And so—and then reading people like Skip Hollingsworth and Pam Koloff, just like, man, that would be awesome if I could do something half that good um, or a quarter of that good. And, and, you know, being around the Mayborn Conference, you hear a lot of different kinds of advice. And the one piece of advice that really stuck to me is like, if this is what you want to do, try it, you know, practice it. Um, get an opportunity where you can do it or do it for free or, you know, if you really believe you can do it, prove it. Were you wanting to do true crime stuff from the start? Uh, so uh, every year, especially in college and, and grad school, I would always read the Best American Sports Writing and Best American Crime Reporting books. Um, and so uh, those were... Things I was really interested in: sports and crime and profiles, and kind of what people considered crimes, crime stories. I, I realized at some point, pretty early on, could be a, a really wide array of stories. Anything from like uh, Silk Road type guys to you know hitmen, actual hitmen. Uh, to uh, I think the the story that I had picked eventually for that Best American Crime Reporting story was about Kennedy. It Was about the do- a doctor who worked on both Kennedy and Oswald. And then was kind of a conspiracy theorist. And the fact that people thought of that as a crime story, I never thought of that as a crime story when I was working on it. And so it was like you know that I realized a lot of different stories. and the same with sports, right? People realized it was sports stories a long time ago. right. It's true of crime and 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 like the best political writers, right? The best political writers can do that too. Just make the story about anything or or just find new details where they, the stories are actually really similar, but they're new details and new characters and make it fresh. Uh, you know that's much more difficult in politics, but with crime and sports, that's I mean that's why that those are such good things to read about.
1: So uh, with Florida being so like rich yeah. with stories, was it hard to leave?
2: It was, uh, and I'm not I'm not like a sun guy, right? I I, I like uh, I'm much more cold weather. I'm built for cold weather, um, but I like the beach. We we lived really close to the beach, um, and it was a really cool job. Uh, and the guys at D uh, offered me a really, really cool opportunity where I could come and live live close to my family and my fiance's family and do stories about the community where we're from and also do a lot of freelance, right? That, that was part of the, the original deal, too. And so it was basically like we sat down and it was literally made a chart of like pros and cons of going back. I was like, yep, we're going back. <laughs> is,
1: well, I want to ask you about that dance between your staff job and freelance, but I, I, I am interested in, the role that you see, like, D Magazine playing and and kind of who your readers are, like, the stories have appeal way beyond Dallas. Are you looking for stories, I know they have to be, like, sort of regionally close, but is that basically the only parameter? Like, how do you think about the stories as they relate to your, like, print subscriber audience.
2: Yeah. So the, the idea of D is like a conversation with Dallas, right? We want to make Dallas even better is the is – the, I think that's the slogan on the magazine. And, and so that involves a lot of different things from writing about city council to the politics to what kind of weird crime stories are around. You know, I, I really want stories that illuminate parts of our – parts of Dallas or, or around Dallas or the suburbs or some aspect – and and one great thing about Dallas is that it's like a lot of other places right the suburbs there are similar to suburbs in other places so right. and for me it, it's some dispatch from Dallas to the rest of the world too
1: i also read a lot of texas monthly texas monthly like appears on long form all the time we've had a bunch of people from texas monthly uh, on the show is there like a d magazine texas monthly rivalry
2: uh, I don't. I mean, <laughs> not really. I love those guys, right? I grew up. I grew up reading all of those people. Brian Sweeney, the editor of Text Monthly, is like an incredible guy. Almost all of those writers have been to the Mayborn at, at times, um, and I and we email back and forth a lot. Um, I really try to not ever be on a story if like somebody like Pam Koloff is on that story, right? <laughs> I'll just try and figure out a way that I cannot be writing that. And so I don't really think it's a rivalry as much as it's. You know, there's a Texas is a really literary place, too. There's a a literary history. That's part of the connection, too, is just like, you know,
1: there are not a lot of city and regional magazines that are like nearly as on my screen as those two are. Why are there so many crazy true crime stories from
2: Texas? I've talked about this a little bit uh, with a couple of other writers, and, and I really think crime stories are like barbecue. But there's barbecue from different regions, right? And some people really like mustard, and some people really like ribs and Casey style. And some people really like – and it's and that's – crime stories are similar, right? A Florida crime story, uh, you know, a cocaine treasure hunt or or whatever kind of, you know, crazy – Thing might be going on in Florida is going to be different than a California st- crime story. Is going to be different than a Texas crime story or a, or, a New, or a New York magazine crime story. Um, there's some elements that are going to be similar. Uh, Texas has a lot of wild, crazy people, uh, a lot of guns. Yeah. What what is what does the Texas crime story taste like? Gun smoke. I mean, it is. An AK-47 at Chipotle.
1: I'm going to continue this metaphor for as long as I possibly can.
2: Yeah, no, it's—Texas has a lot of really interesting, fun things that are going on and really interesting culture that comes from Texas and a really interesting history that is large—you know, that has a lot of war and and pride involved. Uh, And so that creates a really, you know, fun setting for crimes— Honestly, one of the best parts about it is that it's not overrun with writers, right? There are a lot of writers in, in Texas, but it's not like Brooklyn. If there's something really fascinating that's going on, unless it's breaking, you might be the only person looking into it.
1: There was, a, I don't know if you read about this, but there was like a maraschino cherry factory that was busted in Red Hook last year. It was like a giant like weed-growing empire in the basement. And it was amazing. It was just like hundreds of freelance writers descended on this, like, oh, yeah. you know, because it was like, that was the best, the best crime story of the year in Brooklyn. And there were one million people there to cover it.
2: Yeah, yeah. And that's, and that's, you know, part of the great thing about living in Texas is there, you know, you do have some distance. You get, I was born in New York, my family's from New York. But uh, it's hard to think of things outside of here. Uh, it's hard to think of the perspective somebody from Texas might have a lot of times. It's hard to start to focus on... Midwestern flyover country when, you know, there's a lot of things going on here
1: too. Is there any part of you that's like, I need to get to New York?
2: No, no. I like being here for a couple of days uh, and then going home.
1: I mean, part of the reason you don't have to do that is because you are freelancing for uh, magazines that are here, like you've written for GQ and ESPN and How how does that work? How do you manage your staff stuff with
2: the freelance stuff?
1: Do you have a certain amount of stories you're, like, allowed to do? Or do you have a certain number of stories that you have to do every year for D? How does it work?
2: Not really. We don't, you know, they're pretty anti-quota. I think I've done five or six features a year minimum every year I've been at D. And I think I did eight one year. Um, So, you know, as long as they're pretty happy with my productivity, they're pretty cool. Let me go do whatever. And honestly, it's sometimes I have to. I've actually gotten a you know there's there's an editor or two out there, who I really wanted to do something and was trying to do it. And at some point, I was like, I, I actually don't have time to do this. I can't. And that's that's really hard. But it is the freelance stuff that goes first. Oh yeah, it's always the freelance stuff. You know, it's this is my job is D Magazine. Editors understand that too. You know, magazine editors uh, want a, a good story and they're willing to wait or figure out a good time or. Or you know they're willing to work with you to make that happen, if, if, and that's a that's a really good feeling.
1: Does the idea of being like full time freelance
2: have any appeal? Uh, no, I mean I like money, uh, so I don't know about full time freelance. I mean it's 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 the kind of thing that comes up when you have opportunities, but more than anything, I really like a home base. I really like feeling like I have a home, uh, you know. Um, I like, it sounds so stupid, but I like knowing that I can go to the Christmas party, right? I like having that. And D Magazine is a very family-oriented place, right? It's my editor is, is the guy who's directly under the owner, and we sit in his office and come up with cover stories. And it's that, that small sense of, you know, what can we do for the community? What stories have not been told here? What, what aspect of life can we show our readers that they may never have thought about before? Um, and I really like having that sense of home base feeling,
1: right? Let's talk a little bit more about your uh, your home-based crime stories. Cool. Your, the Texas barbecue-flavored <laughs> crime story. <laughs> yeah. I feel like one aspect—I'll stop doing the metaphor— but one aspect <laughs> of those stories is a lot of them are about proper people from the suburbs doing horrible, horrible things.
2: That's interesting. You should notice that. That is— uh, I don't think this has ever come up in conversation before, but you're right. I, I grew up in the suburbs. I'm fascinated by the suburbs, by what goes on in the suburbs, and especially the kind of uh, dark underbelly of the suburbs. You are interested in creeps from the suburbs. And, and just people who make bad decisions and people who get caught up in— <laughs> That's such a nicer way in, of putting it. People who get caught up in really, really terrible schemes that were way beyond what they ever imagined or, or you know, just do really stupid things. Um, the suburbs are full of all of them. You wrote this piece
1: uh, called How to Get Away with Murder.
2: How Not to Get Away with Murder.
1: That's a very important word <laughs> in the title. Yeah. Very important word in the title, <laughs> How Not to Get Away with Murder, uh, which is about a, uh, a guy who uh, has an affair.
2: Yeah. So he uh, embezzled $32 million so that he could uh, live with his, sec- his mistress in California and then used a large percentage of that money to try and cultivate a family of hitmen to murder his wife. And one of them was eventually successful in shooting her. But not killing her. But not killing her.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That guy also, it's not funny, but it's kind of funny.
2: Um, See, that's, it's, crime stories are so interesting because it, there is some dark humor to this, right? And I, and that, I, I did another story about a woman who was kidnapped and tortured for 12 days and, and it's just a horrific story, but there's some elements of things that are just so absurd. That, and this, the Coen brothers tap into this movie. There's some elements of these things that are so absurd that it's funny. And so, it, working on this story, on, on the how not to get away with murder story, I, it was actually really funny thinking about it a long time, until I met Nancy Howard, the woman who was shot in the face, and has one eye now. This is her entire life was destroyed. This is, it's not like a crime story it her, it's her life. Um, these are her kids who, who've who she has a very hard relationship with now. And this is her husband of of a of many decades, uh, and and partner in life who she dedicated everything to, and they sang in the church choir together, who was behind this incredibly crazy scheme, uh, to have her murdered um and, and multiple times. Multiple times I mean over two and a half years, uh spending millions of dollars in huge increments in an in, in absurd, increasingly strange series of events uh, that I can't even describe, really, uh, without, like, 7,000 words. Is that tension, like, morally difficult for you? The thing you're talking about, right? Because
1: that story, the, I read that story, I posted it on Longform, I sent it to a bunch of people, and I described it to every single one of them as, like, this is a Cohen Brothers movie come to life. True crime is in this... People are... are are eating it up in a way that maybe they haven't before and it is from this distance. Yeah. There's an air of remove. of disconnect. Yeah. yeah, From the idea that these are like actual people who this actually happened to. Are they
2: funny to you? There's some aspects of it, right? There's some things that, some elements are really funny. But then when I'm, when I, you know, when I like want to call Nancy right before Christmas, or like just see how she's doing, you know, see uh, how how her kids are, that kind of thing then it's like it's less funny because I, I know her as a person. Um, and she's really sweet. Uh, you know, she is the kind of person who uh, needs people to bake cookies for. You know, she's really kind and, and, and was extremely generous to me with her time and, and all that stuff. But there's also some things that are, you know, even talking to her, she laughs about some things, right? It's, it's like how could he – what was he thinking? In the story about the woman who was kidnapped and tortured, uh, Lois Pearson – when the police show up to the house where she's being held, and and I mean, it's just awful. Everything, everything about it. The torture was awful. Um, and when the police show up, she comes running out, and the guy who had been holding her hostage gets arrested immediately. Right, the cops just turn him around, and put handcuffs on him, and he starts yelling. And this is recorded by the police. He starts yelling, "I got a bad foot. I got a bad foot." At first, I didn't even understand why. I thought that was so funny. <laughs> And it's so absurd and it's – and it's some element of him looking for sympathy and then in my mind it was also like maybe he was blaming all of his bad – maybe his, he had one evil foot that made him do everything awful and it was like just this – and it was like – and, you know, that's – people's brains are funny and make funny things out of things that are really, really serious. It's also, you know, kind of a coping mechanism. We, yeah. we disconnect from things that are ultra serious because we have to. Right? We have to laugh about some things because otherwise it's like, oh, man, the justice system is really terrible. That that really sucks. We shouldn't joke about that. That's awful. Uh, that's a lot of people's lives. But that disconnect doesn't quite bother you.
1: Like you feel like you, your job is just putting the story out there and people are going to kind of make of it what they make of it.
2: It doesn't bother me that much. It's just the space we work in, right? You, If you're writing about a kid or any, anybody, anybody you're writing about, you understand that you're putting out something to the public that people are going to judge. They're going to judge, and 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 the vast majority of people, that may be the only thing they know about that person. That may be the only thing they ever read about that person, uh, and so you have to be careful about that.
1: Let me ask you about uh, someone else that you wrote about that uh, was written about by many, many other people. Yeah, uh, Chris Kyle, who uh, people might know him for the movie American Sniper. You were working on this big profile of him for D, and in the midst of your reporting, he died. Right, yeah. And so the, you, you published this profile, which was sort of a standard profile for a while, and then has a very unexpected turn of events.
2: Yeah, yeah, he was murdered in February of 2013 by a guy he was trying to help. And it was, uh, I mean, shocking, right? That was never... that when you're working on a story, and I thought that story was going to be really good and really exciting and might do really well before he died, and never thinking he might be murdered, right? I was excited to be working why, on a profile, right? Yeah. Excited to be working on a profile of a sniper. And so I still remember where I was when people started texting me. And at that time, there had been weird hoaxes about Navy SEALs getting murdered. And so the first time somebody texted, I was like, "No, no, that's a hoax. It's, it's no." And then like four people texted me within a minute. And I was like, "Something awful has just happened. This is just awful." From a like a
1: writing and reporting standpoint, what did you do when you got that
2: news? So I I think I called Tim that night, um, and uh, Zach Crane, who's a senior editor at D, was involved in that pretty quickly too. We had, may have had a meeting like the next day, but it was, we had to figure out what we're going to do really quickly. And, like, are we still going to do the story, first of all? And then if we do, what is it going to look like? And who else should we talk to? And where am I going to go? And so some part of me was just in total reporter panic mode where I'm just trying, I'm casting every net I possibly can in every direction, you know, any story about him, anybody who who knew him, anybody who could talk about him in any aspect. Um, And that produced a lot of people very quickly. And I talked to the wife uh, with Taya for a long time. Probably the first time was, it was probably six or seven days after the murder. Well, what was that conversation like? A l- lot of her crying uh, and some weird laughter. And actually the first conversation was, I think we talked for almost an hour, and a lot of it was her saying, you know, well, we can't really talk tonight, but we'll talk at some point soon. And then she would just go on and tell me like 10 minutes, 15 minutes of stuff, and then be like, oh, man, you we're still talking about this. Oh well, we'll talk about it more later. Except for this one thing, and then, and it was, you know, in, looking back now, it's kind of therapeutic for her. She was having some sort of release uh, where she's just having all of these happy and sad and frustrating stories about Chris coming out. That you, you know, as she was, as she was talking to me, you, you could tell just pouring out of her. So uh, we were working on the story. Uh, he had told me about this gas station incident.
1: The incident is that he was at a gas station, and two guys were trying to
2: carjack him. And he pulled a gun and killed both of them. And then uh, waited for the police to show up and they found out who he was and let him go. And looking back, you know, I figured out, we traced those stories back to uh, every single one of them. We traced them to figure out where they came from. And we talked about it for a while. And so part of the delay in the story, and this, you know, I first started talking to him in April of 2012. And he, did, and he died in February of 2013. And part of that delay was we were looking for the videos, right? So I'm putting in documents requests. I'm putting in FOIAs in various police departments and trying to get uh, captains and, and sheriffs and, and Texas Rangers on the phone and trying to figure out where this could have happened and what could have happened and when it could have happened and, and you know, what exactly went down. And thinking that there's this video and that if I do the story and we and we don't have the video, then somebody else is going to have, you know, then we're gonna, we are might have something wrong. We might. So I knew that we couldn't do the story until we had the video. At some point, I went to every single gas station on the highway where the story uh, was said to have happened and, and stopped at every single one and talked to people there. And, you know, it's still not perfect. You still don't figuring that if something like a guy killing two guys happened to get, that somebody who works there would know. Pretty memorable. Right? That's the kind of story that's going to pass down even if that person wasn't there. But, you know, not necessarily, not whatever. It's, you can't 100% prove something didn't happen. Uh, but there was nobody who remembered anything like that there. And, and all the law enforcement officers, you know, that didn't happen here. Um, if it happened, it definitely didn't happen here. And there were no documents and no coroner reports. And no, you know, all the things that might occur
1: and yet, you guys still decided to use that as like the lead of your piece.
2: In some ways, it kind of epitomizes a lot about Chris Kyle, right? And and in the end of the story, we talk about you know, all the things I just said, where I went to every gas station and talked to these people, and, and that there are no documents. And it kind of is like almost a cliffhanger, and it kind of bookending the story. Part of the reason
1: that I'm bringing this up is because I don't know what it was. Maybe a couple months later, six months later, or something Nick Schmidt wrote this piece in the New Yorker, yeah, on Kyle, and also reported out the gas station thing pretty heavily and concluded that it hadn't happened. What was that like for you when that story came out?
2: I mean, it's it's always a weird thing when somebody else writes about what you write about. Yeah. Gates at least talked about like literary propriety. And and I've actually joked about that with people too, and that's not a good joke to have with a source because <laughs> they're like, no, I mean I'm not your actual property. And it's like, yeah, th- no, you're not. That's I shouldn't have sure said enough, that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's um, another
1: one of those uh, like real life fiction te- right, tensions. Right. Right. Yeah.
2: Um, every so often, you you end up working on the same story at the same time, or yeah, and we were both at, on the on at the same time. My story had not come out when he was when we were talking. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, And so it was, and it was great, right? He was 13,000 words or something. He was incredibly reported. And he's just a great reporter, great writer. It's a
1: very diplomatic answer.
2: I try to be a diplomatic guy, yeah. I mean, (laughs) it's true, though. I mean, it was a really great story. It's frustrating when, as a a writer, it's really frustrating when somebody else has a really good story about anything. Because it's like, man, that would be, and it's it's doubly frustrating when it's something that you, you know, wrote about or want to write about. I'm just interested in the experience
1: more than anything like
2: it's terrible the idea the mean,
1: idea <laughs> of like you <laughs> you like us finishing this interview and then you just like going and doing another interview yeah,
2: exactly
1: i it would be, it'd be by, it's like and that guy
2: asked all the right questions all the right just, questions exactly. just,
1: we've been talking like for
2: the, an hour and the, just got all these uh, yeah. it's just like an hour worth yeah. of shitty questions it's like oh, opened up the childhood trauma it's just yeah. pouring out that's great <laughs> stuff this is yeah uh no i mean it's awful working on the same story as somebody is awful i did that with uh at some point when I was working on the GQ story about Jerry Joseph the, is the basketball player, I don't know, I'd probably been on it for a month or two when I realized that Wright Thompson was working on that story. And that's a terrible feeling because he's a great reporter and a great writer. And I knew how thorough he was going to be. And I knew him. You know, we'd talked plenty by then. And I sent him an email. I was like, I heard you were working on this story. And he sent me an email back saying he was like he'd already had 1,100 pages of notes and all sorts. You know, it was it, terribly intimidating. <laughs> Um, not so, and, and I honestly, I went to my editor, Mike Benoit at the time and was like, well, I don't think we can do this. This is ESPN's already, And he's like, no, yeah, you're going to do this. This is, um, and he actually told me, uh, you know, he told me about into the wild, uh, how crack hour was not the first reporter that did that story, but he did it the crack hour way. And it became like, you know, do you, do you know who wrote the other story? No. Yeah. The, <laughs> yeah.
1: the, the other anecdote that reminds me of is, uh, the first time I interviewed Pam Koloff for the show, she was like, um, uh, starting to work in looking at the uh, Cameron Willingham story. Yeah. And she like started to talk to some people, and they were like, This guy from New York was just here. Uh, Grand, I think, David Grand," And she was like,
2: Fuck. Yeah. That, it's just an awful, awful feeling.
1: This one was, was even maybe tougher or something uh, because he was such a prominent person. Like Jerry Joseph, you know, that's a good story. Someone was going to do it probably. Right. And then it was going to go away and no one was really going to think about it again. This is like a movie, ended up being a movie nominated for Best Picture. Like, yeah. like yeah. this is uh, not not something that was going to fly under the radar, you know? Yeah, yeah.
2: And and I had time with him, right? I had I had a lot of access to him that nobody else had and was one of the last people to interview him. Uh, so yeah, I mean, uh, if you if your point is my story should have been better. Yes, I completely agree. It should have so been that, much, much better. I, I don't, it was, uh, I, that's not, I'm not trying to make a point about
1: how good your story was. I'm, I'm interested in what the experience of having, uh, that prominent in a story basically just be re-reported by another person. Yeah, I would not,
2: uh, I would not recommend it if you're, uh, into like good mental health. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's, that's all I would say. That's,
1: well, you seem like a perfectly uh,
2: healthy person. Now. That is a, just a terrible uh, assessment of me. That's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you want to get into the childhood trauma stuff, no. the stuff you're going to get into no. then in the next interview? No, to, yeah, no. Do you no. want to tackle
1: that now? No. Do you have, no. Is there something you want to unburden yourself with?
2: No. I mean, look, being uh, uh, mental health is part of writing, seriously, though. It's not, it's, I I think one of the reasons that I can stay up and write a draft for, and not sleep for 36 hours uh, is not completely being healthy, some uh, sometimes, and by the same standard, there'll be like two months where I just I don't have a pub, don't have something published, or you know, a long because there's a large stretches where I'm like, man, I'm just laying on my office floor, like this is going to be really tough. And luckily, I work with people who are understanding, and they know that I'm going to be really prolific during some stretches and not during other stretches. Um, and that's just and like trying to fight that is a bad idea at this point on the mental health front is there something that you're like trying to figure out or work out yeah i mean through it, these stories it's everything right that's like the, the everything right a- a- any aspect of life every story has interesting questions a- any story that's long enough uh, and good enough asks raises really interesting questions sometimes there are answers sometimes there aren't every story that i do there's some of me in there right even if it's not first person, there's some element that that I see in myself or am exploring as I'm reporting this. It's not something even specifically that I'm trying to figure out. I actually, you know, I, I don't even, I have pretty strong views on a couple of things, but not even that many. Um, I'm kind of an open-minded person in, in a lot of ways. If some, if something strikes me as interesting, I just really want to follow it. I just really want to hang out or figure it out or or, like, answer the question, what happened to that guy? Or what happened here? Or why would somebody ever do that? Or what were they talking about during that time? You know, those kind of questions. I just want to figure it out. And I basically, you know, that's what we do.
1: It's very clear reading your stories that that's what you're trying to do. And it does seem to me that often you're trying to answer pretty big questions through very specific narratives. Bill Fong is a pretty good example. I mean, Mm -hmm. like, that's a question about, like, what is what is perfection and what is our pursuit of perfection all about really that story ends perfectly like i was saying before like you know he misses the last pin and it turns out that saved his life mm-hmm sometimes that answer isn't
2: that clear. Like, sometimes it doesn't tie together. It's almost never, yeah. Like, this, the most recent D story. Yeah. Yeah, it almost never, and and not every story can be about how things can't be tied together either. I mean, the entire story can't be about that. It's just a, a factor sometimes. There's You still have a beginning, middle, and end in a story, so an arc. But yeah, some questions are not, you know, there are no answers, and sometimes there's no easy answer, sometimes there's just no answer.
1: We're talking after I just spent the day judging the National Magazine Awards, and the like. The worst thing that people were saying about pieces oh. was that they were pat. Oh, interesting. Which I it was not even an adjective I've heard. That's so condescending. Time. I know. I know. It's terrible. But yeah, people. This kept, is a nightmare.
2: This this sounds like a terrible place for a writer to ever. Oh, yeah, that sounds awful. You
1: should never go into this room. Oh man, you should never go into this room. But they, yeah, people kept calling things pat. I don't even actually know what that word means, kind of. But I interpreted it to mean it was tied together in the end in a way that didn't ring true, like that felt forced.
2: Too tidy or something. Yeah,
1: Yeah, it was like too perfect. And I wonder when you're trying to answer these big questions through these stories, whether it's hard to find an ending when there isn't a tidy
2: answer. Interesting. I think I approach it way more like a blue-collar way, right? I just I just want to get as many facts as I possibly can in in a way that I think is going to be compelling and memorable. And so, endings, I, I'm kind of... I want to, like, have my ear out for an ending all the time. Some word, something that happened, that's a good way to end it, that's a good way to end it, that's a good way to end it. Because that is just the... Endings are so hard. In an actual story, that's just really, really hard to find something that... It demonstrates something and has a closing feel in this kind of ambiguous, amorphous way That's, that's that apparently you can do too well uh, for some people's liking as well. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's really hard. Endings are—there's no good ending.
1: <laughs> okay, on the topic of endings, quickly. That last story you wrote for D, it's this crime story, uh, Unsolved Murder from 1970— The husband, it was a a woman that was killed, and her husband had spent years trying to find the killer, no luck, put up huge rewards, all kinds of stuff. He gets a phone call, and the person on the other end of the line says, I know who killed your wife. Uh, 40 years later, 45 years later. You, I guess, report that out a little bit, figure out who that woman is, and the guy says he doesn't believe it. Right. Even though... The woman on the other end of the line turns out knew the wife's twin sister and believes it was her her brother who was married to the wife's twin sister, the one who killed her. the husband says
2: nah, I don't think so he just said he, he says he, he didn't know he it's you know he's not convinced
1: at that point it's like huh okay this is a pretty weird story, but maybe not even really a story kind of it's like a very uh, long ago unsolved crime there's a lead. The only person who would really care about that lead doesn't seem to care about it very much. And then at the very end of the story, you discover, which somehow hadn't been found out in the investigation or all the in this hugely publicized case, uh, that the husband had paid for a life insurance policy for his wife a week before she was murdered.
2: That's he paid the premium less than a week before she was murdered. Uh, murdered yeah.
1: And that paid out something like equivalent of today's dollars like two million bucks yep and that his alibi was his partner his business partner
2: and that guy
1: had what taken out the like he had signed the papers or something yeah he was
2: technically the uh, the owner of the policies yeah
1: I'm gonna read the ending of that story now the timing of the insurance policy could have easily been a coincidence if this were fiction there would be some tidy resolution here Angela would know that her courage somehow led to a closed case who wouldn't want to solve an unsolved mystery? But reality isn't so pleasant. Some crimes go unsolved. Some questions go unanswered. Sometimes murderers live out long lives without ever being punished. That's it, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's the case. Sometimes murderers live out long lives without ever being punished.
1: Sometimes you're talking to a guy about his wife who was murdered 45 years ago, and you realize that in a case that had no motive, Maybe there was suddenly a motive.
2: Yeah. This is the thing about crime writing is uh, you know, if this were fiction, then that's that's a done deal, right? You know you found this insurance policy, so it must be this guy. Uh and and if, if it's fiction, he's gonna show up with like a with a log or something, right? It's gonna be and it's so definitive. But in reality, I mean it really he still may not have done this. It just is it could have been a totally random crime. Uh and and our instincts want to, you know, indict this guy. but And it, it, is, it is shocking. It was shocking. And, you know, the, I talked to the, the adult children who knew that there was an insurance policy but did not know about the timing. Um, and they got, the, the children got all the money for that insurance policy. There was also, her estate was worth $2.3 million at the time. Something like $15 million now. Seeing that and then realizing that the police at the time had not, known about that. There wasn't a way that they could find that. And, and I talked to people who knew them who believed that they didn't, you know, they didn't know about it. And the, and the husband had a policy where he, as, as a policy in life, doesn't have insurance, um, except for this. This was one of the rare times he did. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of evidence that, that would point to this guy. But the nature of reality, we just, we, you really don't know, though, right? We truly don't know. Same with Chris Kyle. You, we might have really high suspicions, but we truly don't know.
1: And at some point, you just got to kind of be okay with that.
2: I mean, it, it's that's reality. It is it is what it is.
1: I read this interview you did uh, a couple of years ago, and you were talking about how, um, like, you were always a writer. <laughs> and you you told this story, which is very very cute, and I recommend that you tell in all interviews, about um, how you used to write books with your mom. Yeah, yeah. You guys are like you would dictate books and she would yeah. make books out of them. That's right. That,
2: wow, that's yeah.
1: That's the earliest writer origin story I've heard. That's of, right. I, I would
2: think. tell the stories and she would uh write them down and then I would draw little illustrations and they were largely about like ninjas and cows.
1: Is there anyone now who helps you with your stories or or, <laughs> or do you just uh have you moved on do you, do you do them all yourself now?
2: Yeah, no, I I uh I, I from beginning to end I just type it out. My, I don't even need copy editing anymore. Right? I just it's a done deal. <laughs> No, uh, no. My fiancee Tara is is like a saint, um, and she actually reads aloud all the stories, uh, reads them to me, all the stories uh, that I work on. She sees them well before any editors, uh, and and um, that help, that is so immensely helpful. And sh- it's so frustrating for her sometimes because I'm like, no, no, please go back. Oh, we got to change that. No, no, no we got to change that. No, she reads should... them aloud to you. Yeah, she reads them aloud to me. Like I said, she's a saint. Um, and she's actually an incredible editor. Uh, she's a book editor, and she writes the Nightlife column for D Magazine uh, and does a bunch of freelance features herself. And she, of all the people I know, like 100 years from now, might be the most famous writer that any of us, whatever. Uh, but for me, she she really is a saint. It's incredible. And, and some of these stories are about things that she just really doesn't love, right? these some gruesome crime stories or stories about really conservative, you know, leaders that— that she basically thinks are terrible assholes. This is, and she will sit there and.
1: Uh, That's amazing that she reads them to you aloud. She is incredible. Yeah. Do you kind of like write in her
2: voice? Um. I mean, I guess now that when I hear it, yeah, it's mostly in her voice, but because uh, it's literally in her voice. Uh, but uh, I, I sometimes write little things, like little jokes that I know she's gonna like, or little references to things that are only like in metaphors that that she's gonna get, that other people might not get. I think. Um. A long time ago, uh, when I was actually at the Dallas Morning News, I wrote a story and I compared something to Iron Maiden randomly in a story that would not have any reference to Iron Maiden otherwise, because she loves Iron Maiden, <laughs> that kind of thing. You know.
1: Well, it's interesting, because we were talking a little bit about like who your ideal D Magazine reader is, and uh, and you were talking before about how like you kind of can't worry about the reader ultimately; like, <laughs> you got to just tell the story but it sounds like you sort of have like
2: Yeah, I worry about the reader yeah. in my mind. The single reader who is, yeah, the... There's one reader that right. matters. The master reader, yeah. Thanks for coming in, Mike. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks,
1: man. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman, our intern this week, Courtney Harrell. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, Audible, Squarespace, Feverborn, and of course our friends at MailChimp. Thanks most of all to Mike Mooney. He and his wife were in town for uh, only a couple of days and they were willing to waste a little bit of it coming to the office to talk. So thanks, Mike. We'll see you next week.
0: You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.
2: Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets.